0: Hello, and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology, and every week we host somebody from inside the field, around the field, somebody who's working with the intersection of religion and ecology in one way or another, and this week I'm really happy to welcome onto the show Susan Bratton. Susan, welcome. Hi. So you're a professor at Baylor University and the Department of Environmental Science, And uh, you have a a book out about religion and ecology uh, from a few years ago, right? This 2014 book, The Spirit of the Appalachian Trail, Community, Environment, and Belief. Um, That's a very cool book. A lot to be said about that. But uh, the reason I have you on today is especially to talk about this new book that's just coming out with Rutledge, Religion and the Environment, an Introduction. So really excited to talk about this. It sounds like a great text to use for teaching and for introducing people into the field. So uh, first and foremost, I'm wondering if you can tell us what's going on with this new book.
1: Well, an editor actually approached me about taking on the project I was a little surprised I'd been presenting on some of my work on megachurch lawns and on small watershed management and religion at the time. And so she asked me if I'd be willing to take a look and I was, and they're trying to start a series that is oriented towards multi-religious approaches to major issues. One of the other books in the series is on sexuality. So they're just getting this going but I think it it, uh, represents a transition point academically too, because most of the, they have a big publication series on Hinduism and Islam and, and different religions. And they've been selling a lot of texts to overview undergraduate environmental courses in these areas, but they haven't been very topically oriented. So this is a shift for them to try and, provide this kind of material for standard use in upper division undergraduate courses and perhaps introductory uh, graduate courses and to fill this niche. And from my point of view, I knew there were some texts already available, but I am a trained scientist. And so Um, Considering the publisher and their goals, this was a good opportunity to look at the topic from an environmental studies approach, to include some science, uh, regular religious studies, but also anthropology, history, some materials from the arts, and to look at this in a more integrative way and to try and prepare something that's really aimed at an audience that may not have much religious background, And the book also assumes that some of the readers don't actually have much scientific background in the area either. Most of that coverage is pretty short, just enough to get you started if you don't know what's going on. But I tried to write something that assumed that you might not have had a comparative religion course before you picked up the text and that had a lot of cases in it. And There's some tendency in religion to try and go into the deep past, Mm -hmm. to always want to resurrect our history, which is just fine. And that has an important place in what we're doing. But I think it's very important to be up to date on this. So the book starts at Standing Rock Mm -hmm. and a number of the cases it covers are not resolved. They're, They're still active interfaces between religion and environment and the environmental science or environmental policy approaches where there may not be complete consensus on what should be done or places where religion's responses may not be totally in concert with science such as climate change denial. And so those kinds of, of, of issues and interfaces are covered. And when we go religion by religion, we talk about Buddhism, Christianity, then we talk about Islam, which is true of some other books on the topic. I think it tends to emphasize difference just because of the way the scholarship is done. You look for things that are not the same among the religions. When you go topic by topic, and this goes more by scientific and policy topic, Hmm. it talks about harvesting natural resources, agriculture, city planning, pollution, in separate chapters, that tends to show communalities where you see different groups, some of them from very di- from different continents, responding in a similar way.
0: I like that a lot. Yeah, there's some really great texts out there that do break it down kind of religion by religion. Uh, but in this case, yeah, with each topic, you can see how there's multiple perspectives on that topic.
1: And also that they're often using the same toolboxes, perhaps with different iconography, but nonetheless.
0: Right. That's great. Yeah, Standing Rock, that seems like a good one to open with. And when people see, like, look, this is religion and the environment in the news. It's not, you know, just in our ancient past. It's not just in the scriptures. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, what what parts of religion then are you uh, addressing in the book? Is it mostly like religious beliefs and theories, or are you getting more into things like ritual? Uh, what, what dimensions of religion are you uh, are bringing the most?
1: Well, again, as I'm sure a lot of people who view this um, particular, uh, I guess it's a podcast, will know that uh, a number of the volumes available have taken rather theoretical approaches. So I've tried to do a little bit of a lot of different areas there is a fair amount of coverage of ritual and again, iconography or imagery, the way it's used. There's a a short section on Gaia Mm. where you have iconography and science converging over the same issues, our relationship to atmospheric change and the general mechanics of the entire planet. And it begins, um, by discussing, I use Catherine Albanese's division of sacred and coda and, and uh, community and cult, and try explain that. But try to hit those four points throughout the volume. And then there's the other side of it. There's what grassroots activists choose to use, or what actually is turning up in political circumstances. In the Standing Rock case, for example, sacred landscape is a, is important to the court cases hmm. and, and sacred sites. And they also have a sacred fire burning in the center of the main camp and are conducting regular water rituals. So that belongs to that case. I like um, what Cesar Chavez did with popular hmm. piety and think it was a very powerful way for him to address the needs of farm workers. Mm. And so that gets covered relative to the history of pollution, because it turns out if you look at people, this would be true for say African-American churches uh, responding in Cancer Alley right. and the recent uh, responses of churches, synagogues and mosques to the situation in Flint, Michigan, mm. that they're not into deep theology. They're probably not changing their eschatology or their views of the future or salvation very much, but they are viewing community. They are using their existing institutional structures to approach the issues and to try to resolve problems or to assist their home communities. And um, often it's the popular piety or the equivalent that really becomes the driving force behind solidarity in those cases.
0: Right. Those are great examples. Yeah. And I really appreciate seeing these kind of, um, you know, case studies where activism isn't just predicated upon changing big belief structures. Like you're saying, they're not necessarily going to change their eschatology. And yet, nonetheless, you see a lot of community mobilization, uh, which gives me hope because I don't always think we're all going to agree on the same eschatology. It's hard (laughs) to get that kind of consensus, (laughs) but we can agree on what matters to our community and fight for that.
1: I think you'll find better, sometimes better communication in those situations, too. Although to return to Cesar Chavez, when he had banners with the Virgin of Guadalupe, or they were holding mass, that does provide a, a barrier, does build a barrier to Pentecostals who may not totally wish to participate in that context as it turned out liberal protestants were a little bothered mm. by a catholic saint in the vanguard but right. um that was extremely important to the workers themselves mm. and i think a lot of people participating understood that but if you're you're interested in religious environmental organization this is important Um, Another place where trying to decide how to get people together is important, and I covered a number of times, is in religious environmental NGOs, Hmm. non-government organizations. NGOs are extremely important environmentally. The big ones, such as Nature Conservancy and Audubon, do a lot of work that governments can't do. And some of them have terrific – some of the bigger ones have really major capacity – That is, they have scientists on their staffs, they have uh, professional communication staff, so they can do all kinds of jobs concerning environmental awareness. There is uh, coverage of Greenpeace in the book too because they have um, partially religious roots. They go back to the Quaker practice, the Society of Friends practice of bearing witness, and they also integrated... um, imagery and ideas from alternative religion in the early Greenpeace campaigns. Oh. And this is important to, I think it's important to understand it because it also worked very well.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> and these are places where religion has had relatively high impact, where you may not think about it as part of the background of the political um, engagement of the particular group. But now we're seeing more and more religiously oriented non-government organizations that are explicitly environmental, such as Interfaith Power and Light would be one, uh, Roca from the Christian side. Some of them are, um, Green Muslims is another. Some of them are religion specific, but a lot of the bigger ones are trying to get various groups together. So they have to also deal with these communication problems or barriers and decide how to approach uh, multi-faith settings and circumstances. And there have been some successes in dealing with urban problems, for example,
0: Hmm.
1: along these lines.
0: Interesting. Yeah, Can you give an example of uh, one of the successes in, in an urban context?
1: Well, I think there's some uh, faith organizations that are helping to organize. Uh, to take an obvious example, would be churches, in various settings, and to get them, and uh, also in some for some of the uh, interfaith organizations or perhaps better multi faith organizations, to provide instruction in areas such as installing solar, in some cases small watershed management, like interfaith partners for the Chesapeake are helping religious communities of all backgrounds to install rain gardens, to manage their own properties better in terms of preventing pollution from getting into their local watersheds and protecting the Chesapeake Bay. Mm -hmm. And this is, and they're also helping groups to develop educational programs.
0: Oh, great. This Interesting.
1: Buddhist Christian, uh, would be friends, Catholics, Presbyterians, synagogues.
0: That's exciting to see, not just uh, the support for changing infrastructure and design, but also education, right? Because then once you educate the community, then that value center is going to be there for them and that can keep it going in the future.
1: And The Chesapeake Bay Partnership is doing another important job, which I think it takes a little while to get religious um, NGOs used to which is training local congregations to apply for grants Mm. to get assistance for their projects and that's an important um, action that might be difficult for say a denominational office to provide but an environmentally oriented organization can develop programs to assist
0: that's pretty helpful Yeah, I would think that's something uh, a lot of groups really would get pretty overwhelmed with pretty quickly, like how to apply for a grant. Like, I don't know. I know we could use some support, use some money, but actually going through that process seems pretty complicated.
1: Well, I think the local, your local folks might not even think of doing that. They need to know that they're available and then learn enough about the conduits to make it worth their time.
0: Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hearing that it exists is all, already a step in the right direction. Like, oh, there's actually support out there and we can access it. That's really tremendous. So I'm wondering uh, if this is mostly about uh, like case studies and kind of on the ground, grassroots practices. Uh, do you get into theory much or is it mostly just the the case studies and, and kind of grassroots approaches?
1: It discusses some basic points and brings them up more than once, again, assuming that the audience isn't particularly well-prepared. In an early chapter, there is a discussion of the Lynn White essay, and I use Islamic cosmology as an example of how Abrahamic faiths actually work. Hmm. rather than taking Lynn White at face value. So that's pretty theoretical, and that's about cosmology. And it's to provide an example of that. There is discussion of eschatology Hmm. in the case of climate denial. I keep it pretty much to to applications. And then there's some places where it does belong at the grassroots interface. For instance, there's a new idea for trying to communicate religious values to scientists in managing forests, for instance, for um, indigenous peoples or for First Nations in Canada. In fact, the Canadians came up with this, it's called Blue Ecology. Hmm. And it compares uh, First Nations perspectives, how they value landscapes, how they value streams and beaver dams and, what ha- and how they would perceive what happens with clear cutting as being spiritually inappropriate and tries to convey that to scientists so they can understand the difference perhaps between um, the First Nations views and what they learned in forestry class.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, I would imagine that kind of conjunction between science and, and traditional ecological knowledge uh, would be really helpful. And to think that that scientists are getting trained in religious perspectives, I feel like sometimes it's kind of the opposite. We're like, okay, if, if you're a religious organization, you better learn some ecological science. But here we have scientists realizing they should be paying more attention to these spiritual perspectives.
1: Well, despite some unfortunate developments such as religious backing for climate change, denial or atmospheric change denial, which is also denial of sea level rise, which is really not a good idea in environmental planning to think that that's not real and well documented. You're seeing some fairly oblivious approaches there. But in general, religions are not that unfriendly to adopting new technologies or adopting science. And that's pretty much across the board. One of the cases in the book, for example, concerns Vintorn. Hmm. And their attempt at at zero carbon and also accounting for carbon, including all their visitors, trying to get their carbon balance for their home community to accommodate not just their own use, but they do a lot of training sessions. They've been very influential. They've had hundreds and hundreds of people come to study uh, sustainable practices with them. So they're trying to account for all of the carbon that their community is responsible for in one way or another. And that includes a lot of airplane flights.
0: Right. Yeah. That's got to be complicated, especially the more popular that Finhorn gets, the more uh, that people like us are going to want to travel there to learn from them. And like, well, that's complicating our carbon neutrality right now. That's right. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. impressive.
1: So that means you're approaching technology and Finhorn, you would think, perhaps wouldn't be into high tech, but they're certainly into sustainable tech. They're also trying to recycle their own wastewater and have a processing facility for it. Again, and it's uh, certainly a sustainable system. Mm -hmm. So the book covers a lot of cases like that where you're going to see your science and your engineering and your religion come together and find a common ground for problem-solving.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. I feel like when I'm uh, teaching students about this field, uh, that's the kind of stuff that excites them the most, is to see that kind of cooperation from different disciplines and different perspectives, oriented towards solutions, Uh, because I think otherwise sometimes these things can seem so hopeless, and if they just pay attention to the news, you might just hear about science conflicting with religion a lot, and you don't realize there are a lot of uh, fruitful collaborations happening out there. And
1: one of the things that happens in that back to Standing Rock is Standing Rock can look a little bit like a religion science conflict, which I don't think it is at all. I, I really think the supporters of what happened at Standing Rock have a deep understanding of what our particular costs and benefits might be in terms of science and technology. It's not set up that way. But I use an example in the first chapter from a reconstructionist synagogue who put in a lead certified, who when they did their building renovations, had them lead certified and got a platinum certification and point out that that often isn't very newsworthy, but that's a great example of using science and engineering to enhance your religious community life. And then the reconstruction, the synagogue, which is in Illinois also has done, has provided outreach and education for other institutions around their neighborhood who are interested in becoming involved. And a reviewer critiqued me because I included some college and university cases, Hmm. sort of your US Midwestern cases of of, uh, St. Olaf's who've put in a wind turbine and Luther college has. And I mentioned our Baylor, uh, contracting for wind power, as an example of of joining up in an off-campus consortium mm-hmm. to reduce uh, carbon footprint for the campus as a whole. But I think those are important because I hope some of the readership will recognize when they see examples from individual churches or from academic institutions how much work can be done at home, and that might be uh, wind power. It might be gardening. It might be other kinds of conservation projects, but they very much belong in, in, in a community or institutional setting.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think especially the rhetoric around environmental change, like our responsibilities, is often about how we need systemic change, not just individual change. Individual change is like statistically meaningless. And then systemic change is so big, people don't know how to actually affect any kind of transformation. And then what you're showing is there's kind of this nice middle ground your home, right? Your community, you can work with your colleges, you can work with your local churches. And at that community level, there's actually a lot of room for change.
1: And in the case of the Baylor program, which incidentally I didn't initiate or when our seminary was Hmm. the first um, instant part of the campus to have lead building plans or to initiate that. And I point out that religious polity and views of community and church-state relationships had a lot to do with why that happened, why the seminary rather than business school or one of the science buildings was the first part of the the university to initiate. It really did have to do with religious values and taking people from town, now the Chamber of Commerce downtown has has a certified building with a rooftop garden um, that spreads back and forth among institutions and helps, I think, to build uh, community uh, uh, ethic. Something, though, about the middle is that that probably is a pro- an issue for religious organizations, that hierarchies or world councils or groups of leaders, it's very easy to release a statement or come up with an ideal Program And it's a lot harder to get it back down to the laity, to the community, to just the rank and file. And I think that's one of the struggles in religious environmentalism right now is that it often works very well grassroots. I've seen some spectacular contributions internationally from grassroots activism. And it's often pretty easy to support the Paris Climate Agreement. Conceptually,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. To say but, I agree with that, <laughs> yeah,
1: I agree with that, but it's a lot harder to to do something about it locally, or to or to switch economies, and it really does take cooperation with science and technology to really make tracks with that. Sometimes in national settings where you have um, a religion that's very important in a national sense. And an example would be, that I use is Morocco, which I had to get from newspaper articles because I couldn't find a, a, a an academic journal article on it. It's so new where they're trying to provide solar for all the mosques in the entire country. Wow. And this has turned out to be important. A lot of... Um, Villages in Morocco don't have good electrical power service anyway. The infrastructure may not be fully developed. Their schools may still not have full power or may not be properly, may not have proper lighting for off hours. And so when you build a solar mosque, you actually can generate enough extra power to provide for local pumps, for drawing water or to provide for some of the houses in a village, you do a good architectural job on it. You can actually help build your local infrastructure. You can train uh, local youth in uh, technical uh, professions that may uh, give them uh, a chance at a new job or something that might help them in establishing long-term career goals. And so you see some big overarching programs like that, that I think are working across the middle, but then there are a lot of places where you get stuck. One of them is there are some surveys done around 2011, 2012, indicating that very few people in American religious congregations, churches, mosques, et cetera, have ever encountered a sermon or education on atmospheric uh, change, on climate change. Might have a third who've run into that Mm. at their home congregation. And that's the gap in the middle. Most of those people, those congregations belong to organizations that have released statements or may have provided some kind of support, but it's just not connecting. And that's a, a problem of scale and of organizational structure, which applies to a lot of other social ethical issues as well. Right. But it's a, a directly, I think, a problem in religious communication, which the the what I call rangos, religious environmental non-government organizations, which rangos can really help with. That's a job where um, interfaith power and light can really assist with programming.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and they're pretty big. You know, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area where um, IPL started. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of interfaith power and light folks around here for sure. Um, well, geez, I don't know. This is all really exciting. I, I could basically hear you explain each of the parts of the book. Um, but at some point, like, I think I just need to now read the book. I'm really excited about it, especially things that are so current that you couldn't find any academic materials on it you're just like in the case of morocco you're just like i'm just having to look at newspapers here so i mean this sounds like really the state-of-the-art kind of the cutting edge of where the field of religion ecology is at right now but i guess for one kind of final reflection uh, i'm curious about you know how you got into this personally i always like kind of turning the table a little bit so we can see how a scholar or a scientist got into a field because you're doing such interesting work how did you get to a point where you saw this intersection as important, right? Instead of just doing science, or instead of just thinking about religion, you're thinking about religion with science, with environmental science, with ecology. So how did you come to this in your, uh, your personal life?
1: Well, now, you could go back to the beginning when I belonged to 4-H, oh. back in the old days of Christian stewardship, It was a little bit limited in terms of its religious perspective, but I grew up in a a social setting where you wouldn't see a big divide between religious practice and going out with the county extension agent to learn about soil conservation or to plant potatoes to make money for the 4-H club. Um, But when I was at University of Georgia at the Institute of Ecology and I was running a park service cooperative, I was already – professional scientists for the U.S. National Park Service, and I'm a plant ecologist originally. And the environmental philosophy program there was really getting underway in environmental ethics. The journal Environmental Ethics was originally having published at that campus for a number of years. And so I kind of fell in with that group. They were holding seminars Uh, roughly monthly at the Institute because we had such a nice open area for that. And a lot of the members of the philosophy and religion department actually were also members of the Institute of Ecology. And then we had people from places like the landscape design um, program that uh, also were were attending these seminars. You had sort of an aesthetic and architecturally oriented crew also present. And I began to get engaged at that point. And my first article, what published article in the area, was the ecotheology of James Watt, who was secretary of the interior at that time and whom I did not agree with over his Christian perspectives. It's true, I was working for the Department of Interior when I published
0: mm-hmm. that
1: article. But the term ecotheology came from the idea of eco-philosophy. It was a really response to the philosophers that I was um, working with. And I may be the first person to use it in print. If not, I was pretty close. But that was um, just saying, well, we can also uh, look at this. And so I began to become more engaged academically. But I'd always assumed that religion and faith influenced your environmental view, your preservationist or your conservationist perspectives.
0: Right, right. That's so great. And thanks for getting the word ecotheology out there. (laughs) It's, it's done a lot of really good work uh, in the meantime. Uh, Well, geez, I think I I better let you go or, or I'll just start uh, chatting with you forever. uh, Because these are all really interesting things. So I'll have to have you back on to hear more about this. Maybe after the book comes out, some reviewers say things, we'll have you back on here to tell those reviewers what's really going on. I appreciate that some reviewer gave you some trouble about things like bringing up the cases at St. Olaf's or at Baylor. Like these are great examples.
1: Well, they're examples for student readers to realize what you could do with your own campus environment. Um, The book is out. It um, will take a week or two to, I think to get it in print. It's available in ebook right now. So if somebody wants a desk copy, I think they can get, or a review copy, they can get it from the uh, editors or email me and I'll provide a copy and I'm easy to find at the Department of Environmental uh, Science at Baylor. I'll mention one more thing about all this that concerns this final phase. I'll be very interested to see what my colleagues had to say about it. Because one of the decisions in writing a book for a general readership like this is where to put your politics relative to what is going on. And although we tend to associate environmentalism with being liberal, there are a lot of pretty conservative farmers out there and business people who are plenty interested in sustainability or, or Christian stewardship, or they're happy to be green Muslims. And so I'll be interested in seeing whether I cut a reasonably peaceful path through all of this or not. And what my colleagues think about that in the long run, whether they think the coverage was on the mark or not. And there are a number of cases in the book which are not settled. And just to give an example of that, I bring up the macaw whale hunt, Hmm. which... um, was a place where many people who belong to environmental groups disagreed rather vehemently with the Macaw tribe from Nia Bay when they wished to initiate hunting of gray whales. And that is part of their traditional uh, religious ritual environment. They still would like to take a quota from the uh, International Whaling um, Commission. And um, so that's an unsettled case. And I would expect in a class for there to be people who would be for the Macaw, for the environment, but against the Macaw, I would expect some animal rights responses. And so I've left some cases like that sitting in the book. I haven't necessarily said what I thought about resolving them. And we'll see how that goes. I think if it's, taught properly with the students that they'll engage very well. But I didn't try to settle it all.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Cause I imagine uh, that there will be some pretty lively and, and generative discussions in classrooms about that. Because it's just really tough issues and there's not one simple, clear-cut answer for these things. Uh, so yeah, I appreciate that. that's one of the one of the toughest things I think that doesn't always get explicitly mentioned when people are talking about religion in the environment is the politics involved at that intersection are pretty complicated. And, uh, and geez, especially these days to talk about the divide between the right and the left, pretty, uh, it's relatively controversial. Uh, so I'm glad that you, uh, that you got into that and that you're giving teachers an opportunity to bring up these discussions in class without there just being a simple answer to cover it all up.
1: Well, I think I'm probably pretty pro the scientific view on climate, but the, um the more uh, climate denial view is brought up, I hope, respectfully. And uh, there are a bunch of others. One of them is transboundary water management, such as the Israeli, Palestinian, uh, Arab state management, shared management of, of the Jordan River and of other water sources in the Middle East, which is not entirely settled. It's getting better, but is certainly not entirely settled by any means.
0: I'll take getting better. <laughs> That's not too bad. Yeah, far from settled. But yeah, good to hear that there's there's some improvement and the dialogue's happening. Um, well, geez, thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking more about this. And I'll definitely add some of the uh, links for the book and so people can contact you. Uh, so when the episode goes up, uh, people have ways to, to connect to all these sources. So Susan Bratton, thanks so much for being here.
1: Oh, thank you. I think this is a great project.
0: Oh, thanks. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another episode for you. And in the meantime, take care and be well.